Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. Uh, this is the report number 62. We're going to cover uh, the findings from the previous month, the month of March. Uh, my name is Edison Magalhães here at the SDRS studio. Hi, I'm Giovanni with the SDRS. Hi, my name is Guilherme, also at the SDRS studio. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also with the team. And today, like I mentioned, we're going to cover the findings from the previous month, the month of March, in, uh, for the SDRS project. But also, we're going to have a discussion with our special guest that we invited. We have the pleasure of having here today with us Dr. Maria Clavijo, joining the SDRS podcast. Dr. Clavijo is a research associated professor at Iowa State University and health assurance veterinarian at PIC. Dr. Clavijo, she got her DVM from the Universidad Central de Venezuela and her PhD at the University of Minnesota. Uh, currently, uh, Dr. Calvillo Research Group has been working with swine pathogens, including mycoplasma, uh, hypermonia, mycoplasma, urhenes, and today's podcast main topic is on streptococcus suis. Dr. Calvillo, thanks for joining us and welcome to the SDRS podcast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Clavijo, for being here in the SDRS podcast. Guilherme, could you provide us an update from the March what we have been seeing in the SDRS? Yes, let's start for the first page for the PERS virus that uh, even though we had like an activity below the expected in the weeks of the March 6th and March 13th, the overall percentage of positive submissions was similar to February. So uh, around 25% of positive submissions, the overall. But at the state level monitoring that we have these state levels baselines, Kansas and Ohio, they have an activity above the expected uh, for the month of March. And when we move to the sequencing part for the advanced variant scenario that we are keeping track of every month, in March, we keep have this continuous report from East states having this sequencing detected over there. And one example is Pennsylvania that we have three sequencing uh, coming from that and also Indiana. But nevertheless, it is important to inform that the concentration of detections continue to be the Midwest states. And I would like to highlight the Missouri situation that we are having the highest number of advanced variants detection in the month of March with seven one sequences uh, positives uh, from the advanced variant coming from Missouri. And also it's important to notify to our audience uh, that we had two sequences coming from South Farms in the Oklahoma state from the advanced variant. And what the advisory group has been telling us about that? Well, the, our advisory group highlighted that they have some possible dissemination sources for diseased states that are contributing to this increased detection over there. And one of them is the coal market moving positive animals to these regions. And also uh, movement of animals from multipliers that do the replacement over there and, all, and some somehow they can like introduce positive animals as well for the advanced variants. And trucks coming back from packing plants that are possible sources of dissemination of these variants as well. And the advisory group uh, reinforced that the importance of biocontainment and bioexclusion practice to avoid the dissemination of PERS in this specific region and also in the whole US. And also the importance of testing animals, not only guilds, but every animal that is placed in a, in a different site to see if these animals are pos positive or not, and do the follow-up through the weeks as well to confirm that these animals are really negative animals that we're introducing in this area. So in sum, biosecurity and biocontainment practices should be always in the radar there. Of course, yes. Anything from the entire coronavirus there? Yes, from the last episode, we said that TGE was close to complete two years without any detections in these five VDLs that we have enrolled in the SDRS. And now we have the pleasure to announce that in March 23rd, 
TGE completed two years without any PCR positive cases uh, in this SDRS network of labs that we have. And also, but now moving to the Delta coronavirus is kind of the opposite. We are having an increased detection right now uh, in the month in the month of March. And just to have an idea, when you look to the historical data, uh, usually it's four percent of positive submissions that we have to this period, and now we have the double with eighty percent of positive submissions. And since we look back to this historical data, we start to notice that every two years we start to have this cycle of increase of Delta coronavirus that is going on. And so it happened in 2018, it happened in 2021, and now it's happening in 2023 again. And looking to the state level submissions again, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Kansas regarding Delta coronavirus, they have an increased activity compared with the baseline. What the advice group has told us about this activity of Delta coronavirus? Well, for the specific month of March, they said that the cold temperatures coming from the winter night contribute to this virus to still like persist in the environment. And also the production system have more problems to washing and disinfecting facilities and trucks. So that's contribute to have this virus like going around in the sites. But regarding the cycles of every two years of we have this increased detection of uh, Delta, they mentioned that more investigations must be done. Uh, mainly to the role of the feed ingredients, wild animals, and also serological uh, status of the farms to see if these can contribute to the cycles occur every two years. So it seems like we still need to further explore what's going on there, that we are in having this increase in detection of Delta coronavirus at the, the month of March. So when you move on for the other pathogens that we have for PCR detection, PCV2, mycoplasma, harmonia, and influenza, any information for those ones? Yes, uh, for the mycoplasma specifically, we still have a continual increased number of total cases. It, we, we do not have a high activity of positive cases, but when we look to the historical data, for example, in 2022, the monthly submissions for mycoplasma was around 600 submissions. And now in 2023, we are having 800 submissions per month. So it, it seems that they are monitoring more for this specific pathogen. And moving to influenza, we are starting to have an increased activity mainly in the winter market category. And this is expected uh, based on the SDRS database. We also uh, identified that the spring and the fall seasons, we kind of have this pattern of increased detection of influenza uh, every year. And moving to the PCV2 situation, uh, I would like to remind that in January, we informed that we had an increased activity in the winter market category, this high activity, but it was concentrated only in the Iowa state. And now in March, when we looked, we have a marked increase in the number of positive submissions coming from South Farm and also a drop in the average CT values of these submissions. And these are, in, and these are coming from all the states that we're monitoring for PCV2 specifically. Well, that's interesting, PCV2 coming back from South Farm, so something may be there. Any comments from the advisory group for SDRS? Yes, they highlighted the importance of vaccine compliance and effectiveness, so try to always do the full dose, like not only that you half dose and investigate if this is, might be causing this increased activity in terms of vaccination. And also the PCV2 genotype B that might be circulating in the field. And most of the vaccines that we have in the market today do not cover this specific strain. That's great. Thank you for providing that feedback for us, Guilherme. And just one more comment that we have there is that PCV2 is also making up on the top 10 disease diagnosis list this month from the Iowa State University. So something may be going on there that deserves further investigation. 
No, very good. Well, let's move on to our discussion with, with Dr. Clavijo, especially here today, we're going to focus on, on, on strep suis. Dr. Clavijo, so focusing on, on that, on, on, on strep suis, we would like to know the overall situation of strep suis in the U.S., in your opinion. And as I have assurance veterinarian, how often do you deal with the with trap suicide clinical cases and what's the, the, the impact on, on the swine industry? Right. So um, strep suicide is the number one endemic bacterial agent we struggle with most at the multiplier level, realizing that our multipliers are negative for mycoplasma high in ammonia, right? So um, this is likely the the, the main uh, bacteria that we deal with in, in our farm herd, in our farms. So as a reminder, this agent causes meningitis, arthritis, serositis, septicemia, and it's not uncommon to see between two to 5% of the mortality attributed to strep suis. And in outbreak scenarios, you can see upwards to 10% of mortality attributed to, to this pathogen. Um, this agent is typically regarded as a secondary agent, um, meaning that we tend to see it a lot more when we have outbreaks of influenza, outbreaks of PERS, even with mycoplasma high pneumonia. I've had several cases of multipliers where we finally get the, the strain, the strep suicide strain from the herd after a microbreak. Mm -hmm. So that's def definitely something that you see in, an uptake of cases when you see strep suicide. However, what's interesting to note is that we continue to see strep suicide disease in high health herds suggesting that frequently this agent creates disruption of the health uh, status of farms without these viral or other uh, you know, triggering agents. So the question is, wh why is that, right? And I think it's important uh, to remember the, the epidemiological triad or triangle uh, that we know that the agent, host, and environmental factors interrelate in a variety of complex ways to produce disease. So you know, different diseases require different balances um, and interactions of these three components. So if we focus specifically on strep suis, uh, given that it's an, an endemic agent, or in other words, it colonizes pigs, um, we see that a certain management factors such as poor ventilation, high stocking density, uh, fluctuations of temperature, commingling different flows, uh, definitely is associated with outbreaks or increased cases of strep suis. However, in other instances, the balance shifts over to not environmental, but the pathogen. And we definitely see strain, uh, herds that carry a pathogenic strain or a highly pathogenic strain that just, that's basically what drives the, the disease. Um, and of course, what, like, like I just mentioned, other viral or bacterial agents that destabilizes that immunity and strep suis takes a hold of that and causes disease. So to summarize, develop, uh, the development of appropriate practical and effective prevention and control measures will require the assessment of these three buckets, not only the host and building that immunity in the host, also is understanding and characterizing the agent, and then finally controlling these environmental or management practices that we know are associated uh, with, uh, with disease. And for us at PAC in particular, it all started with the right characterization and um, sequencing, let's say, or, or yeah, in-depth characterization of the agent using next generation sequencing. Now, 
now putting my Iowa State VDL hat on, uh, we wanted to understand how much of the agent we were diagnosing at the VDL. So in collaboration with you guys, in collaboration with the, the great team of pathologists that we have, and with the expertise of Dr. Anna Paula Silva and her statistical background, we uh, went into an in-depth characterization of the uh, frequency of detection and disease of strep suis over the last five years. And I just have a couple of you know nuggets here of information I think your users or your listeners rather might find interesting. So strep suis is, uh, accounts for 22% of all cases with an infectious etiology. So think about every single case that has an infectious etiology that is submitted to the VDL, 22%, so a fifth of them, are strep suis. Not only that, it's all out of all neurological cases, 70% of those cases are strep suis. So when you think about neurological disease in your herd, strep suis needs to be at the top of your list. That is equal to about 350 cases a year um, with more of an increase over the last couple of years. So think about it, we're diagnosing strep suis at least once a day at the VDL. And then finally, about 30% of all infectious arthritis are also due to strep suis or diagnosed as strep suis disease, and about 20% of serositis cases. That's an interesting point. So we typically think about strep suis as a meningitis and um, arthritis-causing agent mainly, but what we're seeing is still, you know, um, not only does GPS and hyorhinus cause polycerositis, we also need to think um, more about strep suis being the trigger for that disease. And then while arthritis and meningitis cases remain steady over time, we actually saw a significant increase over years, over, over time of bronchopneumonia cases attributed to strep suis and then endocarditis cases. So those are the kind of the two latest diseases that we're seeing more strep suis involvement. Mm -hmm. Thank you, MJ, for all those information from the field and from your your both of your hats, right? The field and the and the and the researcher hat. Can we dive a little bit on that? Because we know that we're not just observing; you were you were very uh, actively involved in in a lot of not, uh, great uh, applied studies on SUS. Can you? Uh, what can you share about that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So again, putting my breeding stock company hat on, I would um, say that for us, every we're the pyramid, right? Every starts everything that we want to do of improvement of health needs to start at the top, so that it can trigger down or um, trickle down to the rest of the of the stakeholders. So in that sense. We are always looking for um, ways to control, prevent, and eliminate diseases. So, you know, one of the things that we've been working on is trying to eliminate some of these endemic agents that contribute to a lot of our dependence on antibiotics. And the logical one to think about is strep suis. So, what we wanted to understand is how does pathogenic strep, so I might make uh, a little parenthesis here, strep suis is a very varied uh, species. So you can have anywhere from commensal, let's call them opportunistic non-pathogenic streps, all the way to highly pathogenic streps. There's actually a lot of science behind this and how these, these subpopulations are quite, um, you know, at the genetic level, pretty different. Uh, so 
We wanted to understand how this end, how these highly pathogenic Strepsuis strains move between pig populations. And we focused on the period that we can make a change or we can modify or affect to break that transmission and try and establish new negative herds. So that's kind of the context around this project that we did. So what we ended up doing is uh, trying to describe the dynamics of disease-associated Strepsuis in the lactation, lactation phase. So focused on sampling piglets and sows using a novel marker. So strictly a tonsil, a nasal, or other samples in the pig to see if we can directly use a PCR to say, does that swab have a pathogenic strep or not? Again, we're not looking at the entire species, right? Because every single sample would be positive. Again, it's a, it's a colonizer. It's found in many parts of the body of the pig. But we wanted to only target in subclinical or you know um, health otherwise healthy pigs, how is this transmission of these pathogenic streps happening? So understanding again the epidemiology of pathogenic streps would allow us to refine control and prevention programs for this pathogen. And the next part, more applied, is well once we know how the dynamics of infection occurs. Uh, Producers and veterinarians will want to uh, figure out what the best sample type is to target um, to make these investigations at their at their level, right? At their um, in their farm. So we wanted to describe the detection of, of disease-associated streps in different dam-related samples and piglets. So identification of more sensitive, easier to collect samples would facilitate tracking of pathogenic streps. So I'll run through quick uh, take-home messages from this. Essentially, number one, we now at the VDL have uh, onboarded and validated a novel PCR that detects pathogenic streps that can, that can be used in anti-mortem samples. The next thing that we found was that there's a clear differences between distribution of DAS between parity groups and farms. And the ta ba basic take-home messages here was that gilts and gilt litters had a higher level of, of strepsuis, pathogenic strepsuis. What does that mean? It means that control programs targeting the gilt, so effective gilt acclimation, colostrum management, antimicrobial use might be an effective way of minimizing pathogenic strep um, on the farm. And then we also saw some interesting things on the piglet side. So not everybody is, is weaned positive. So you have a grit, a big proportion of piglets that are weaned negative. And the question now is, uh, does weaned status predict disease? Is a positive animal less likely or more likely to be uh, affected by disease post weaning? Um, and then the other interesting point that we saw was we saw a dip at seven days um, post uh, or seven days of age, we saw that the left, the prevalence in both herds decreased. Um, and, and what I, we, we take from that is that there might be either the initial detection that we saw at birth does not uh, necessarily mean infection. It just means you're finding it. Uh, and really what you're capturing at seven days does reflect infection or you're having some sort of effect uh, on colonization from colostrum. So I'm, I probably missed it, but what we ended up doing was following sows and their piglets over time and sampling them at four different times. And these are kind of the things that we're trying to say is that gilts versus older sows 
were more prevalent and those litters from those guilds, again, more, more prevalent than litters from sow herds. And then what I just mentioned about uh, carriage in, in piglets. And then moving on to sample types, we did find something really interesting. When you typically see the literature, tonsils are the way to go for antemortem sampling. And what we discovered is that nasals are, nasal swabs might be equally as good, if not better than tonsils to identify pathogenic streps. So again, think about uh, doing nasal versus tonsil, a lot easier to collect nasal. So that might be a better way of you know, doing these investigations um, in the future. Um, and, but we also found strepsuis in the environment, in the environment of the pharaoh, you know, in the pharaohing crate, we found it on the udder um, of the pit of the sow, highlighting that transmission of pathogenic strep, vertical transmission might be happening in these areas and not necessarily uh, contact nose to nose. So, you know, that's our kind of the main findings. I don't know if you have any questions. Thank you yeah. for the quick you know, da download of all that information. Just a quick Question follow up is you mentioned guilt acclimation. How can people acclimate yeah. guilt for SOEs? It's such a easy statement to say, right? Like, oh, you we need to acclimate, do a better job of acclimating guilt. And Daniel, the bottom line comes down to it's a it depends on the agent. For some, we have vaccines for it, and for and for other agents, we don't. For other agents, we know that feedback, like Rhoda, is very effective at guilt acclimation. So, in particular for strep suis. I think there's enough in evidence, um, field evidence to suggest, and and uh, empirical evidence to suggest that vaccines are effective mm -hmm. for for strep suis. So I think that a combination of uh, strategic medication on piglets and then on on uh, guilt, it would be preferral vaccine, and then also during their development, it would be the two ways that we're mainly, um, you know. Uh, acclimating gilts for 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 bugs but more work definitely needs sure. to be done in that area hey dr clavio you, you talk about this diagnostic process using of next generation sequence and all of those things that come along for these types of diagnosis i'll be curious what are your thoughts on how to build a diagnostic process there that would be confident that streptococcus is the, the cause of disease there and how what what interventions could you apply on a farm on a daily basis. Right. No. I, um, so about four years ago now, a, a, a producer came up to us and said, you know, what are the strains that you have of strep? And we were kind of left like, what? Yeah, I know I've had a serotype here and a serotype there, but we really invested a lot of resources and time um, to understand the distribution of strains uh, using next generation sequencing. So uh, you asked a question about um how do you know you have disease in your herd? I think once you think about the diseases that these bugs can can um, do, like meningitis, arthritis, septicemia, serositis, you do uh, a really good job at targeting acutely infected, non-treated. I would say two or you know three to six pigs per flow. Um, I also recommend. I always always recommend getting uh, taking your thermometer with you and actually collecting pigs that have fever. Um, we've learned a great deal, or I've learned a great deal from the pathologist on what are the best samples to collect. Um, we would avoid lung, uh, re reminding the audience that lung has a variety of isolates, and it's most likely that you get the wrong isolate if you take lung. 
So you would want to target those tissues that are related to that disease, right? So if you're seeing polycerositis, take serosal surfaces. If you're seeing neurological disease, take uh, CNS samples. In that sense, intact head is better. If you can't do that, sending uh, cerebral spinal fluid is really good. We've actually collaborated with SMEC and put some videos on the VDL, um, and you can access those and see how to collect that sample. And then finally, meningeal swabs. Avoid collecting the meninges and sending them. Why? You can contaminate easily. And if you contaminate, you tend to take, you tend to grow the wrong strain because non-pathogenic or commensal opportunistic strep suis are much hardier, robust. They grow easier. So they tend to outgrow the pathogenic ones that are smaller, uh, let's say, um, you know, less uh, able to, to grow in these environments or these um, plates. So I, so I said, target the lesions, target the tissue that you're seeing lesions, right? If you're seeing arthritis, send the intact leg better than trying to open up that joint and creating that opportunity for contamination. Um, what else? I think, you know, your whole process of shipping, you know, include fresh and fixed tissue. Do not mix lung and meninges in the same bag, because again, you can have that cross-contamination of isolates. Um, always include the history and metadata, refrigerate your samples, um, and then be patient. For some herds that are high health, that rarely see strep suis, trying to get the right strain takes two or three attempts. For GPS, for glycerella parasuis, even more. So I think it's not unreasonable to think that you're going to be going back to that farm probably two times to try and get the right strep suis strain. And then you follow that up with serotyping and virulence factor PCR. And once you have those two pieces of information, you can go ahead and do next generation sequencing. These two PCRs or serotyping and PCR based on virulence factors can alleviate some of the cost, meaning you don't end up sending to NGS the wrong strain and, and wasting money on that. So that's kind of like the thought process that, that we do on diagnostics. But then on interventions, great question. On interventions, there's two things that I like to think about. There's your emergency treatment. You know, okay, I have an outbreak or I have an increase in cases. What do I do? Two things. Emergency treatment, which would be either you do uh, an intramuscular, you know, cephufer or NRO um, and DEXA, and you can do that in pigs that are showing clinical signs, and you can follow that with some penicillin, amoxicillin in via oral or um, via water of the affected groups, and then also think about doing potentially as a prevention something at weaning, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, again, an exceed at weaning could be something that that we think of, or, or an NRO at weaning or septifer at weaning could be something that we think about. Uh, so that's kind of an emergency treatment. But at the same time, when you're seeing these increases in cases, you want to take samples again and run through what we just mentioned about diagnostics. Do you have the right strain in your vaccine or do you have a, a introduction of a new strain? So what we just mentioned. So that would be one bucket, emergency or you know diagnosis and treatment, let's call it of emergency cases. The next one is one that I like to refer as the immunity challenge balance. So in one sense, you want to maximize immunity and on the other, you want to minimize challenge. So on maximizing immunity, what we just talked, Daniel, it's guilt acclimation, it's you know use and building that immunity in the cell, passing that good colostrum to the piglet. 
Um, we also like to avoid anything of long, you know, long uh, term effect on on the piglet, meaning like a long term acting drug before 14 days. Why? There's a theory that we want piglets to get um, colonized by pathogenic streps under colostrum immunity. So they build that active immunity. And once they're weaned, immunity goes down from mom, but they've already started to gain that immunity from being exposed in the lactation phase. If we go in and do something that affects that transmission under colostrum immunity, the pig is weaned not only without uh, maternal immunity, but is weaned now without creating its own immunity. And you have you can see an increased cases. So again, no science to show that uh, yet, but we we definitely see that um, using maybe a short acting pen earlier and within 14 days of age is what is better than a long acting drug. So what was the next step? So, um, you know, you might want to do some sort of prevention medication, some pulses um, or some medication, oral medication in nursery, maybe something that you um, do prevention, you know, an injectable at weaning, but it's, it's that, um, you know, maximizing immunity and minimizing challenge. The last thing would be to manage groups all in, all out, and then minimize any environmental triggers, um, you know, temperature fluctuations, commingling of herds. I know that's harder to, to achieve. Um, and then um, humidity, maintaining that humidity low. Very good discussion. Yes. Really yeah. good. Thanks, Dr. Clavijo, for, for participating and bringing all this information. Very, very helpful. Very good. I'm sure that our audience will be glad. I was just recently in Brazil, and it's a big issue also. Strap Sue is now there. So it's a good topic, and thanks for bringing all the, all the thoughts and ideas. And I see you guys next month. Thank you. Thank you.